Father, words can rarely express what you mean to us and what the gospel message means to us, and yet they're all we have. And in our simplicity, all we know to say is thank you. Thank you that you are the true and better Adam who has come to save the hellbound man. That you are the sure fulfillment of the law and in you we stand. We thank you that in your death we have life. We praise you, Father, that you would love us when we were unlovable. That you would love us still. All your goodness and all your majesty and all your splendor is all displayed in the work of Christ on the cross and in the resurrection. We find your mercy there and we see your grace. We see your love displayed. We see compassion. We see justice. We see open arms of a loving God. And I pray, Father, this morning that we would see those things again in your word. We ask humbly for your blessing today. That you and your spirit would do a, a divine work that is recognized by everyone here. That this goes far beyond just some guy talking or a group singing songs. You're doing a supernatural work in our lives, in our souls, and you're doing it with your living and breathing and active word. We pray and ask that you would take it and the truths of it and press them deep down and expose falsity, bring the lost to salvation and glory to your name. We ask these things because only you can do them. And so we ask them in Jesus' name. Amen. Take your Bibles with me, if you would, and open them to the New Testament letter, Romans. Romans chapter 5 is where we will be this morning. As we do take this unique time with the church around the world and celebrate the resurrection of our Lord, as Doug said at the beginning, this is something we celebrate every day as a believer because our entire faith uh, hinges and is built upon the resurrection. Without Christ rising from the grave, we have nothing. And Paul says that in 1 Corinthians 15. If, if Christ um, hasn't been raised, then we are of all people most to be pitied. We have no hope, no life, no future, and we're, we're slaving away for nothing. And yet Christ has resurrected. And we celebrate that resurrection around this time every year together, globally, universally, as as one bride and body of Christ. And today, you and I are going to celebrate the resurrection in the best way that I know how, and that's by highlighting the truths of the gospel. We're going to look at the beautiful and glorious message that you and I can be saved and have peace with God through Christ. So look with me in Romans chapter 5, verse 1. In fact, if you back up into chapter 4, verse 25, Paul references the resurrection, talking about Jesus. He says he was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification, resurrected for our justification. And then we'll just look at just verse 1 this morning in Romans 5. Therefore, 
Since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. If you're looking for a scripture to memorize, that's a great one. It's a great place to start because the gospel and the need of the gospel is encapsulated in just those few words. You and I, above anything this world has to offer or anything we can imagine, you and I need peace with God. That's the chief need of every human being. For a believer, we understand that because we desire that. We, not, we want nothing more than peace with our Father and approval and love from Him. But sometimes we must labor to expose why we need peace with God to those who do not know it. Let's begin this morning considering the inverse truth of this, this passage, this scripture, the, the opposite truth. Paul is writing, and the main thrust of the whole verse here, the main point that he's wanting to get across is that phrase, peace with God. It's, it's what everything's built upon and flows to and from in this one singular verse. But implied in that, having peace with God through Jesus Christ, implied in that is the opposite truth that you might not have peace with God. In fact, it's absolutely true that every sinner, apart from Christ, does not have peace peace with God and while we might celebrate a verse like this that says we do have peace with God we highlight that we celebrate it we we rejoice in it the the opposite truth of that should strike terror in our hearts as well that every single person apart from Christ has no peace with God whatsoever absolute period that's the end of the story and the truth is many people today even some in the room this morning let's just be frank have no peace with God right now you might think you have peace with God, but it doesn't matter what you think. God looks at you and sees you in your sin still and apart from his son. And he says, there is no peace between you and me. Let's clarify what we mean by peace for a moment. When Paul uses this word peace in, in this verse of this chapter, he's not talking, talking about a, a feeling of serenity or a calmness of spirit. He's not referencing the kind of peace that every beauty contestant known to humanity has ever referenced. He's not referencing the absence of chaos or the absence of trial. When Paul writes, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, he's not saying we have an easy life of rainbows and butterflies and roses blooming all the time. He's referencing a kind of peace that's used in conjunction with war. A wartime peace. A peace that has connections to hostility and opposition and rebellion and rejection. In other words, he's talking about a war between humanity and God. And some people find peace with God in that war. And others remain without peace in that war with God. The Bible goes so far as to call us, as unbelievers, enemies of God. If you look down into chapter 5, verse 10, he says it in the positive, much like verse 1. He says, For while, if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life, the little snippet there in verse 10 is before reconciliation to God, we are enemies of God. 
If you flip over into chapter 8, verse 7, he says it in a different way. He says, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Verse 8, Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. That's very clear teaching from Scripture and just two quick references. We are, apart from Christ, enemies of God Almighty and hostile to Him. We are people of opposition to the Creator. That's a far cry from the world's definition of a loving God who has no demands or expectations upon your life. That's a far cry from the God that society has fashioned that says He's only there when you need Him and only there when you're in trouble. You call Him on Him anytime you want. The God of the Bible says, I have demands. I have expectations. I deal with things of justice. I have wrath against sin. And that wrath is poured out on His enemies. And understand this, the loving God that we like to depict and hold in our minds most often, He pours out that wrath against His enemies without reserve. In fact, in Romans chapter 1, verse 18, Paul begins his letter talking about such things. He says in verse 18, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. That's a sobering verse, isn't it? One that we're familiar with. But don't, uh, don't neglect the, the absolute phrasing there. The wrath of God is given to all ungodliness. And all unrighteousness. And you and I find ourselves in those words. In that brief list. And Paul says that wrath is revealed from heaven. It is poured out without reserve. Psalm chapter 7, verse 11, God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. A God who feels anger every day. He righteously looks and judges the acts of sinful humanity and rightfully pours out a wrath against those who are his enemies. John chapter 3, verse 36, Jesus himself from his own lips says this, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. But whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. We do a disservice to proclaiming the gospel if we don't proclaim the reality that you and I are currently under the wrath of God apart from Christ. There's a disconnect often between people who profess Christianity and people who actually follow the God of the Bible and, and have to come to grips with the fact that he is a wrathful God, rightfully so, against all unrighteousness. And notice what Jesus says in verse 36 of chapter 3. It's not that you enter into the wrath of God. It's that the wrath of God remains on you. Apart from Christ, you are already under the wrath of God. Make no mistake, you sit here this morning, if you are unconverted... And you are right now, presently, in this instant, under the wrath of God. If the righteousness of Christ is not your righteousness, you are under the wrath of God. 
And if death were waiting in this moment, that's where you would remain. Ephesians chapter 5, Paul says it a different way. Verse 6, let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. What are the, the these things that he's referencing? If you backed up into, into chapter 5, verse 3, he references sexual immorality, all impurity, covetousness, filthiness, foolish talk, crude joking. Again, sexually immoral people, impure covetousness, idolatry. Let no one deceive you. Let no one deny it. Let no one trick you. Let no one hide it from you. For because of those things, the wrath of God comes. When you consider all of these lists, we can even look back into chapter 1 of Romans. He, he gives another list. Verse 29, people who are filled with manner of all unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They're gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. You might be thinking to yourself, I'm not one of those grave serial killer sinners. But the truth is, the Bible is full of lists where we find ourselves constantly. It goes on to say in, at the end of chapter 1 in, in Romans, Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. You and I find ourselves in that list. We even give approval to the things in those lists. We approve of gossiping against one another. We approve of slander and maliciousness and greed and envy. We approve of such things. And we practice such things. And for such things, the wrath of God comes swiftly and without reserve. Which makes, in my mind, Romans 5.1 all the more important. I desperately need peace with God. Because the opposite of peace with God is the wrath of God. And the wrath of God is something I cannot escape. And it is something I cannot endure. It's an imperative reality that people wake up today to the realization that the God of the Bible is a God of just wrathfulness against sin. And He's not a God defined by the world's standards. He's a God defined by His own word. And we have to deal with such a God. We have to wrestle with such truths. We have to submit to such realities. This isn't a God that you toy with. And as I said before, because of these truths, your greatest need is not comfort or health or wealth or relationships or anything like that. Your greatest need is peace with God through Jesus Christ. So, why is this peace, peace so imperative? Why is this wrath so quickly poured out upon sinners? That's the lingering question. And the answer is, first, in considering the holiness of God. We must briefly consider that God is a holy God. And His holiness is His defining attribute. It's the umbrella characteristic that encompasses everything else that defines God. For instance, God is a God of holy love and holy mercy and holy grace and holy wrath and holy justice 
and holy righteousness, all of those sorts of things. And his holiness, by the simplest definition, means he's set apart in every way. He's set apart from the rest of creation. He's not like you or I. He's transcendent, which means he's far above us, far above creation. And his holiness is such and is so powerful that he makes the unclean pure and the unholy holy. He can touch the ordinary and all of a sudden it is set apart divinely. God's holiness means he is supreme. It means that he is far above creation in his splendor, in his glory, in his purity, in his perfection. Everything that you and I are not, God is in an infinite amount. And such holiness that God possesses that defines him cannot, and even more precisely, will not mingle with unholiness. God will not, even if he could, he will not dwell with sin. And even if he could, he will not tolerate unrighteousness in his presence. And therein lies the problem. A holy God confronted with sinful humanity with a holiness that cannot ignore the injustice of sin. You and I must realize we are guilty creatures in need of what Psalm 25 says, pardon me God for my guilt is great. We are guilty creatures in need of pardon. We're guilty of sin that has separated us from God. The Bible knows that there will be many people who reject such a reality. That they're sinful beyond measure. And so it speaks to such subjects. You have Romans 3.23, the all-encompassing, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You have another one in 1 John chapter 1, verse 8. If we say we have no sin... We deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Verse 10. If we say we have not sinned, we make Him a liar and His word is not in us. John is very clear, isn't he? If you minimize, justify, deny, neglect your sinfulness, you are not converted. And even worse, you make God out to be a liar. All of us are imprisoned under sin. And that sin, Romans 6.23, brings forth the wages of death. Unless you think you can pin that sin on somebody else, let me read James chapter 1 to you. Verse 14, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth Death. Here's the unmistakable reality. We are all sinners against God's standard of perfection. And as sinners, we must acknowledge it. If we do not, we are unconverted absolutely and we make God out to be a liar. And here's the rub. 
the sin that so plagues your life and condemns you, condemns you before God is not uh, the result of some arbitrary external factor upon your life. It comes from the depths of the core of who you are. You are tempted to sin by your own heart's desire. And as such, you are guilty. I'm giving you lots of scripture this morning because it's best for God's word to speak for itself on such matters. Listen to Romans 3, verse 10. None is righteous, Paul says. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they've become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. The way of peace they have not known. And there is no fear of God before their eyes. That's the plight of every human being apart from Christ. None of us are righteous. We are a people who have rebelled against God. We are a people who have followed our own desires and plans. And in doing so, we refuse to submit to God. We refuse to obey Him. We refuse to follow Him at all costs. We refuse to worship Him and serve Him and exalt Him. And we are the only creatures in all of creation to do so. And such a response to God, as the Scriptures are clearly portraying, leaves no other result than eternal punishment under the very wrath of God that the Bible has highlighted. The resurrection of Christ means nothing if we don't first understand our plight without Christ. And this holiday that we are so keenly aware of and have such great plans around this Easter holiday that we, we look forward to so much as believers, it means nothing if you don't understand your guilt-deserving wrath apart from Christ. You and I can sing all the Easter songs we want to sing and dress up as nice as we want and paint as many eggs as we want and do whatever it is your family does, but none of it means anything if you don't first come to the realization that apart from Christ, you are dead. unequivocally and that some of you this morning are celebrating a holiday that has no implication upon your life whatsoever and as Jesus said you still remain under this wrath and there's nothing you can do to escape it there's nothing you can do to alleviate it your sin is not just a simple mistake. Your sin is not just something that forfeits your ticket out of heaven. Your sin is not just something that isn't a big deal and I'll make up for it later. Your sin separates you from God and robs you of the peace. Verse 1, chapter 5 of Romans talks about. And being robbed of that peace is no light matter. It has eternal consequences.
question is now, is there any hope? And what can be done? It's quite clear at this moment we need help. If peace with God is what we need and we do not have peace with God on our own because we're guilty in our sin, we need help. What can be done? And this is where the miracle of the gospel begins to take shape and its beauty begins to shine forth and freedom and the breath of life begins to enter into our lungs. It's when we come to this realization that we're hopeless and we need help and we cry out for such help that we begin to taste the goodness of God and the glory of the gospel. Because this God who pours out wrath upon sinners, this God who looks at rebellion, humanity, and classifies them as enemies, this God who has the divine right to destroy all humanity with no explanation necessary, is the very God who acts on our behalf. He is the God who plans redemption. He is the God who initiates redemption. He is the God who accomplishes redemption. And He is the God who applies redemption. He does it all. And I find it to be an astounding thought. That this God who has been offended by our sin and who is holy and far above us as we've established and who does have the divine right to destroy us has out of His own love accomplished what we couldn't for us. Romans chapter 8, verse 3. Paul says, God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. He's done what we couldn't do through the law. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. God did what we couldn't. He established our righteousness for us by keeping the law on our behalf. He's done what Paul identifies in Romans 5 verse 1. Justified us. If you look in the structure of that verse, chapter 5 verse 1, although we've spent little time there, the structure of it demands that justification is what we need to have peace with God. Justification is a word that the New Testament uses often and beautifully. And it's a word you need to know It's a legal term that defines our standing before God. A legal transaction. John MacArthur simply defines it as this. It's a one-time legal declaration with continuing results. In other words, you and I are, as we've established, found dead in our sin, under the rightful wrath of God, and yet God has made a way to save us and reconcile us to Himself by declaring us justified before Him. Legally right, legally forgiven, legally righteous in His presence. Oh, again, you don't need comfortability. You don't need wealth or or anything like that. You need righteousness. You need justification. He's done this by... Well, it's a better description in Colossians chapter 2. Let me read there. Colossians chapter 2. 
Verse 13, you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. That's the definition of justification. Where God takes our debt against him. And he says it's, it's gone. It's forgiven. And it's dealt with. It's paid. I've nailed it to the cross. Full payment has been received. God's justice doesn't allow him to ignore sin. Doesn't allow him to sweep it under the rug. Doesn't allow him to dismiss it. Perfect justice, divine justice, means sin must be reconciled and dealt with. For God to ignore sin would mean that he was no longer just. So his justice demands it to be dealt with. And God dealt with it in Christ. He has accomplished justification on our half church. And how has he done that? He's done that through his son, Jesus. Which means first, and you must know this absolutely, it doesn't come through your own efforts and your own work. I was sharing with a brother just this morning, your salvation is not based on the absence of sin in your life or the presence of obedience. Your salvation is based on Jesus alone. It's Christ who has acted on our behalf. Chapter 3 of Romans, verse 20, By works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Absolute clarity. No amount of obedience, no amount of self-proclaimed righteousness, no amount of good works will ever justify you in the sight of God. This isn't a matter of doing enough good to outweigh your bad. This isn't about having good morals and being an upright American citizen or seen in the eyes of of the public as as a holy and righteous person. This is about Christ. Hebrews 10.4 even says, it says the blood of bulls and goats can never atone for sin. It's not even about your ritualistic religion or rites of passage or milestones in your life. Last night we were, Jamie and I were driving home somewhat late for us. And I said, you know, I have half a mind to show up in the morning to preach in my house shoes and old gym shorts and a greasy t-shirt I wore this week working on one of my trucks. And she looked at me appalled. It's Easter Sunday and you will do no such thing. You will wear your best. And I said, but I have a point in it. It's to remind us that Jesus didn't come for us in our Easter best. Came for us in our grungy clothes that we couldn't take off. There's no amount of cleaning that my wife can do to get the grease out of my shirts. And there's no amount of cleaning or righteousness I can do to get the stain of sin off of my soul. This day means something to us because Christ came for us when we didn't fit this mold. When, when we, we didn't deserve to sit here. When we didn't deserve to hear the gospel preached. When we didn't deserve to worship Him and sing His praises and be in the body of Christ together. We celebrate the resurrection of Jesus because we primarily didn't deserve it. 
And yet God acts through His Son. And He gives us His righteousness. And He takes my house shoes and gym shorts and greasy t-shirt and He clothes me in white robes of purity. White robes of righteousness. Philippians 3, Paul expresses his very desire over this very issue of righteousness. He He says, I, I have suffered the loss of all things for his sake, and I, and I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Here's the key. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. The cross of our Lord is not some arbitrary or symbolic gesture. It's where Jesus himself takes upon his body the sins that have condemned you and I under this wrath of God. And in that moment, he drinks in the wrath of God on our behalf. And instead of giving us the rightful wrath we deserve, he gives us his righteousness. And it's not that he adds to our righteousness His robes of purity aren't put on over my greasy t-shirt. He replaces any kind of righteousness I could hope to have. The cross isn't just this symbol we wear around our necks or in our earrings or on our t-shirts or put up behind us or celebrate on days like Easter or any other given Sunday of the year. The cross is where we're saved. And the resurrection is the very validation that the atoning sacrifice of Christ on the cross was sufficient. That's the moment where our righteousness is given to us. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. You and I need righteousness given to us, declared over us through justification. And that justification only comes through Jesus Christ. So every sin that you and I have ever committed. Every sin that makes us guilty. Every sin that is rightfully deserving of punishment. Jesus drank in himself. Again, the Bible speaks far better than I can. Please listen to these verses. Colossians chapter 1. Verse 19 and 20, for in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself, whether on earth or in heaven. Making peace by the blood of his cross. It's the very cross of Christ where the peace with God that we so desperately need and desire is one. First Peter, chapter two, verse 24, Jesus himself bore our sins in His body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Same book, chapter 3, verse 18. Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God. 1 Timothy 1.15, Paul says this saying is trustworthy. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. 
chapter 5 of Romans, verse 6. While we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. One will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 1 John chapter 4, verse 9. In this the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. Verse 10, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. You didn't earn God's righteousness. You didn't earn God's love. You didn't earn God's salvation. You are dead in your sins, rightfully under the wrath of God. And it's in that moment that Christ died for the ungodly. Those who are absolutely opposite of God. You and I. But here's the reality. Knowing this information doesn't mean it's applied to you. And you know what? That's going to distinguish a many souls on the day of, of Christ. Many, many myriads of souls will be distinguished on the day of judgment between possessing the information and having it applied to their soul. Countless people have the information. Few have it applied. Countless know the truths we've talked about. Many can articulate these truths. But this truth, this information isn't universally applied to the world with no responsibility on our end. How do we get this justification? How do we get the righteousness through Christ, it is given to us. We are justified by faith. Again, no acquired acquiring of this blessing through works or effort, only through faith and trusting of Jesus Christ alone. What does that faith look like? Well, let's first begin with the promise real, real quick. Acts chapter 2, Brian read from it this morning. Acts chapter 2, verse 21 Peter is preaching his first sermon since Pentecost, his sermon at Pentecost, really his first sermon since the Holy Spirit has indwelt him. Uh, first sermon of many sermons. And in verse 17 through 21, he quotes from Joel 2. And Joel 2 is a promise. Joel 2 is a promise that says, this is what life is going to be like in the new covenant when God pours out His Spirit. And Peter preaches in Acts 2. And he says, the promise of Joel 2 is here being fulfilled. And here's the last part of the promise of Joel 2, verse 21 in Acts 2. It shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. The word for Lord there is Yahweh, as used in Joel and as repeated by Peter. And yet in Acts chapter 2, Peter explicitly connects it to Jesus. Even referencing the resurrection of Jesus. He says, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. In other words, the promise is this. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord God, Jesus Christ, will be saved. That's the promise. Everyone who turns to him will be saved. Here's the definition of faith as I 
see it defined in Romans chapter 4, verse 21. Paul's talking about Abraham and he says, He was fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. Fully convinced that God was able and would and willing to do what he had promised. You and I are justified by faith in Christ alone. What does that faith mean? It means we look at the promise of God that all who come to me, who call upon the name of the Lord, will be saved. And we are fully convinced that he is faithful to keep that promise and able to keep it. We look at other passages like we read earlier. 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. He is, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I'm fully convinced that God is not only able, but willing to keep that promise. That is faith. Romans 3, verse 23, all have sinned, fall short of the glory of God. Verse 24, and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as the propitiation or satisfaction of His wrath by His blood to be received by faith. It was to show His righteousness, verse 26, at the present time, so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus, of the one who looks to Christ and says, I believe your work on the cross and your resurrection out of the dead is sufficient. I'm fully convinced that you are able to save and will save those who call upon your name. The question is now, have you called upon the name of the Lord with complete faith, Convinced that he is able to save you. Or are you trusting in something else? Salvation is offered to everybody by God. The call is to place your faith in that substitutionary work of Christ and you will be saved. Have you done that? Or are you placing your faith in Christ plus your obedience, plus your grandchildren, plus your children, plus your spouse, plus your works? Whatever, the list is endless. The hardest part about faith is letting go and having faith. Do you have faith? Well, let me wrap up by saying it's at this point that we find the verse 1 of chapter 5 in Romans to be true and beautiful. And a realization. That verse is ultimately written in the positive sense. And Paul is ultimately in that verse declaring the result of justification by faith. And the result of justification by faith is peace with God through Jesus Christ. To understand the positive nature, we have to understand that negative nature as we've walked through this morning. But notice the sequence of events in verse 1 of Romans 5. There's this connecting word since, S-I-N-C-E, or maybe your Bible translates it because. Since or because we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We need to be removed from the wrath of God and given peace with God, which is life with God. How do we do that? It's by being justified by faith in Jesus Christ, who died on our behalf, and rose on our behalf that we might find life in Him. Here's the reality. Such a truth like this has a transforming effect in your life. 
it changes your allegiance at the very least. A true convert who is really born again and saved by the blood of Christ recognizes how magnificent the gospel really is. And they humbly recognize that I can no longer, if this is true, live for myself. I must now live for Christ. For he has when I didn't deserve it. He has died for me and saved me. True conversion always manifests itself in an allegiance change from self to Jesus. The question you have to ask is, where is your allegiance? And you might readily and easily answer right now that your allegiance is to God. But what about examining the fruit of your allegiance throughout your life? I say that because many people think they have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Many people will claim that. And there is no inkling of an indication in their life of confirming that truth. The good news is, today is the day of salvation. You can recognize the fruit of your life and come to real genuine faith in Jesus and be saved. And in that moment of salvation, have real genuine peace with God. Are you thirsting for peace? Are you hungering for the peace that Paul talks about? Do you live in, in fear of God and in, in questioning of your eternity? Do you sense that there's still this war between you and God? Are you trying to catch up in your good deeds? Or do you truly know the lasting real peace that Christ provides between you and the Father? If you're an unbeliever and you need peace today, you can find peace with God by coming to Christ. You come to Christ with great diligence and let no hindrance such as pride get in your way. If you're a believer who does know the peace of God, your only rightful response this morning is gratitude. Thankfulness that results in praise and adoration and joy and commitment and devotion. I trust that God in His Spirit will show each one of us how to respond appropriately. Father, Your Word is living and active. It doesn't come back void. And we know that You have a purpose for it and You accomplish that purpose. God, You have every one of us here this morning for a reason. This day is Your ordained day. Not one of us said under this passage or these verses or these references or these words idly or by accident you have each one of us sitting here for a reason and i know the reasons god i know the reason is to convict the lost that they might be saved and to stir up the faith of your children those are things we need you to accomplish and we ask that you do for your name's sake again in jesus name we pray amen